Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions. Questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt. Questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. As has become our practice, we will start with the text. So we are in Jeremiah 29, uh, verses 4 to 7. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, so they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased here and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. Well, we are here for a few reasons today. One is um, more than once in our previous episode, the idea and word shalom came up. And that is a word that we want to root in as we start this podcast. And it's a word that appears here. I think shalom is an important word to think about what it means, but also to think about what it doesn't mean. I think that for me, this is a little bit of a stuff opinion, um, first opinions, as they say. Um, it's a word that is has started to get used so much that it sometimes feels like it doesn't have much meaning anymore um, because it means too much. And so I'm hoping, one of my hopes today is that we'll get more specific about what it feels like, what it is. Um, and as I was thinking about these verses, I was thinking also about where we are and that we are recording this in fall of 2021. And we are still someplace hard after we have been someplace hard for a long time. And when we find ourselves in scripture, it feels valuable to, to notice the different kinds of places there are and the verses here are taking place in exile. And I think there's some feelings to exile that might be feelings that a lot of humans can relate with in fall of 2021. So here we are, Jeremiah 29. Um, maybe let's start with that, those feelings of exile. So if you're a human and you have only ever lived in one place and suddenly you're carried away and living in another place. What's that feel like? As a good Minnesotan, I've never left the state. <laughs> ever? Well, I mean, I've traveled, but I've never actually like moved or lived anywhere else. Like oh, I've always okay. Thank lived. Goodness. I was starting <laughs> to wonder. I was like, oh dear Lord, we got to take her to Wisconsin. <laughs> But that's such a good point, Lisa. Like we, we take for granted sometimes even those sorts of things. Do we know what it is to physically live a place that is other than the place we've lived? How much have we moved? How much have we had different life experiences? Um, and many people in the modern world are more mobile than people in the ancient world would have been. That you you really are surrounded by the place you live for generations because that's where you're established. 
I mean, even to the extent, and correct me if I'm wrong here with this uh, ancient Near Eastern history, but typically like sons would remain in the father's like home, like in that land, right? They would kind of add on to the estate. And so you would, not only would you not go off to Wisconsin, you would typically just stay on your family's land and eventually you became the landowner once your father passed away, but then your sons would add on to that living space and become occupants of it with their spouses. And it was a self-perpetuating you know, perpetuating thing. And so you're not even moving out of the home if you're a male. If you're a female now, exile might have a whole different meaning to it based on the way culture understood things. But from a male perspective, you were expected to still be home for the most part. Am I right? Yeah, well, and it depends. I think it depends culturally. You have some groups that are more nomadic and some groups that are more settled. But when we're, where we are in history, when we are in Jeremiah, the people have lived in the land of Canaan for hundreds of years um, before exile happens. They're quite established there. People are established in their homes. And even if they move around, they're probably going to stay within their people group. Like maybe you move from Galilee to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to the South, but you don't become a part of another people group. And so when we're talking about exile to Babylon, we're talking about a different place, a different land, also talking about a whole different culture. And we're also talking about moving into the position of from oppressed to oppressed, from oppressor to oppressed. Mm -hmm. So part of the reason that people lost the promised land um, and the backstory of the prophets is that they really... There's a whole group of people there. Those in power abused their power. And that was what led them on the trajectory of, of exile. And so many people had become oppressors. Now with the Babylonians, they have become the oppressed. They have become the conquered people. So they have moved locations. They've moved cultures and they have moved social status. In a snap of a finger. In some way. Okay. So I was thinking. I'm this made me think about like I was trying to think about like okay so what's my personal experience like how like how can I relate to this story and it reminded me of um in high school uh my mom was in a particularly um abusive relationship and we had to we kind of like did an overnight move um where we packed up our house and moved in 24 hours and moved into a different family's home super complicated family situations <laughs> But I had to learn quickly, like a new family and a new family system. And um, it had its own set of things happening to it. But what I was thinking about was like, even in, um, as you said, the word stuff like oppressor to oppressed, there are still people who are oppressed, like who just never quite move into that total oppressor stage either. Like you're just, you're kind of moving from one to another, but your social status may not change that much, or it may change like hugely in in all that moving like there's still all the layers of humanity within all these things happening and so I was thinking like it's just um it was different it was just a it's a it was a different it ended up being another <laughs> negative situation to move into but it was different mm -hmm. so for some it might have been more of a lateral move from oppressed here to oppressed there mm. yeah yeah it is, um, you know, I think one of the things interesting with Bab 
ancient conquering methods were different. <laughs> Some groups were super violent and just like killed everybody. The Babylonians were pretty strategic about it, which is why you have these like, um, there's multiple rounds of exile. So they kind of go into Israel and they take, or Judah more specifically, they take the A team and then the B team and then the C team, and then they leave the outcasts behind. So they first go in and they take the best and the brightest, the, the richest, the most educated, and they put them into their system. So this is the book of Daniel. I will take this young educated people and I will put them into our courts and we will educate them according to our ways so they can become a part of our power structure. That's the A team. That's exile one. <laughs> then you go in for like the skilled workers um, who can help you build your buildings and all of that. That's the B team. And then the C team, you go in for the laborers. But then there's also orphans, widows, and that sort of class that was oppressed all along actually gets left behind in the land. The, uh, Babylon doesn't think them worth taking with so you also have you've been one people group but now you're sort of you've sort of been divided by those who've oppressed you in a different way as you've been taken as well i mean disorienting is the only word that would was coming to mind when when you were asking like what comes to mind in regards to going into exile i, I but I, I mean, it doesn't even begin to describe the physical, probably the emotional, the spiritual toll that uh, someone goes through. I mean, my lived experience cannot, you know, adequately at all relate to what exile must have been like. The most drastic thing we did was, you know, move to Tennessee. And, and that was a culture shift going from Minnesota down to Tennessee, where I got called a Yankee all the time, even though I had never been to New York and definitely didn't cheer for the Yankees. But <laughs> I mean, that wasn't exactly um, going from oppressor to oppressed. It was, you know, just a new environment to get used to. It was a new culture to experience. The South is very different from the North in, in a lot of ways. In some ways, we're all American and speak the same language. You know, I was working at a university, so it was more of a melting pot of America because you had students from all over the country coming. And so it wasn't exactly like I was, you know, in the, you know, the mountains of North Carolina or something where culturally it's very different. So I, I, my lived reality doesn't, doesn't know how to place myself in the, these shoes very well. And so I think a lot of learning and a lot of listening is required for me to try to wrap my mind around what Jeremiah is doing or what the end of Isaiah is trying to do and other kind of the, the exile prophets are doing. So yeah, well, and I think there's probably two things we can take from where you're bringing us, Jason. One is we can say, there's a way whenever we are looking to find ourselves in scripture, it's it's healthy to hold a certain amount of distance and say, I really don't know what it's like to be this people group. Like I've never been in that position and I need to hold, like, I need to know that. I need to have the humility to know I do not know what it is like to be conquered as a people group. I've not had that lived experience. When that hasn't been true of us, for some people that has been true of them. And also at the same time, can we find little bits of commonality that help us and say, but I do know what it's like to have this happen. I do know what it's like to have to move houses in the middle of the night to Lisa's example. Or I do know what it's like, like this is just the littlest example of something. But just this weekend, I went to a restaurant and it was full of people and I was the only person who had a mask on. I don't often have the lived experience of being the only person to look a certain way. I've, I'm usually, I've most often been a part of the 
majority of certain things. There's a way that even just that little bit of experience says a little bit, just a little bit about what it's like to suddenly be enveloped by another people group and go from being your own, where everybody's dressed a certain way, everybody's doing a certain thing to now I'm, everybody else is doing it differently than me. I had a glimpse of that through this mask experience and how it felt in my body. Um, and, and how can we then develop empathy for other people groups when we have those little bits of experience and can find ourselves there? I think that's really important. You know, we, we can only draw upon what we have. Like we can't conjure up an experience that isn't true or isn't real. You know, we can, we can also draw upon the stories that have impacted us. Right. So either it's, it's our own lived reality or it, it is having done some listening and some reading to other people's stories and being able to to listen really well to the emotions and the thoughts and the feelings that they had in those moments to try to connect on a human level the best you can to to what that would have been like or what what that was um you know when i hear stories of exile or stories of oppression you know reading james cone and a lot of his theology um, and and studying the spirituals, you know, the songs that came from the slave era of our country and hearing what they were hoping for and singing about the River Jordan and going to the promised land. Like I said, I can't put myself in those shoes in any way, shape or form, but I can listen well to those stories and try to learn as much as I can, which makes the scriptures come alive because now I'm not just only viewing it through the lens that I have, but through the lens of the stories that people have offered us and, and, and given us. Well, and I think there's also with, we also have options of proximity. So like if we um, choose to spend time with people who are seeking asylum, people who are refugees, um, even like for myself, it's spending time with people who are incarcerated. I think in America, that's probably one of the places where we can see like actually exiling happening um, in a certain way when you, when you are, committed to the prison system, then you are exiled from, that is a whole different world (laughs) contained within itself with new rules, new ways of behaving. And um, for me, it's helpful to spend time with people who are impacted by that because they can give me, they can help me get in a perspective that I wouldn't get otherwise. So I think too, like, Mm -hmm. I love Cone as well. but also like there's people, there are people around us who know this much better than we do. Right. right. Um, and, and now let's add even more complication by looking at verse four, because in this particular example of oppression, and we have to be very careful with this for how we pull this forward, according to verse four, who is, who or what is the source of this particular example of hardship and oppression? The Lord. Right. The, okay. The Lord of hosts uh, to my people whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay. So we have God saying, I brought this exile to you. This is me. Which can get us into really dangerous territory when we are trying to relate to scripture and pull it forward. And we say, what, what do we say is God? What do we not say is God's? But this is where I think it's helpful to say, okay, how do we apply the Bible to our religious circumstances? Because in their case, 
their land was deeply connected to their faith. One of the primary things they lose when they lose Jerusalem is they lose the temple. They are now living in a land where their center of their religious identity does not exist. And God wanted them to lose the center of their religious identity. If God caused them to be carried away to Babylon, God caused them to lose the temple. God caused them to lose the way that they have always gathered around the worship of him or her, whatever pronoun we want to use for God. What does it say if God is saying, I caused you to lose the religion you have always known? Well, it definitely makes you wonder what religion were they practicing or what form of that religion were they practicing that God suddenly was like enough? Like, not only is this not okay the way you're practicing it or the way you're going about it, but it's so bad and so corrupt or so whatever that I don't even trust you to like be a part of fixing it right now, at least this generation. So you just need to go. We're going to try again some other time. Or, you know, if we look down the road, we know that they eventually do go back. But like, there's something about what's happening in that moment that there is, in a way, no hope for that to be turned, that, that idea of it, that expression to be turned around. Well, I was going to say, like with Jerusalem, I mean, it's interesting that it's like, God doesn't say I've, I'm taking out of Israel to Babylon. I'm taking like, I, or I'm he, like the particular thing is Jerusalem. So is the only thing that Jerusalem, like, is the assumption when you hear the word Jerusalem that you hear like center of religion, like what are the, like for the people when they like, is that what triggers with Jerusalem? Like all my temples gone. Well, because Jerusalem is the center of the pilgrimage festivals. Jerusalem is where you go to sacrifice. It's where you go for the festivals that are outlined in Leviticus 23 for what it is to work your life around. The central thing that you are losing if you lose Jerusalem is theocracy. You are losing, so you are losing the palace and the king and you are losing the temple and you are losing the way that those two things have been tied together. And God is causing that to be lost because something to what Jason said, something is so irredeemable for what it has become that it needs to be lost and refound instead of just changed. Mm. So let's carry that forward when we think about religion and church and where we are in 2021 and might we enter into the imagination that there are things that God might cause us to be carried away from because we got a better shot at death and resurrection than we do at change. Ooh, we got a better shot at death and resurrection than we do simply change. That is, that's a profound concept. That's a profound well, concept because everybody just wants to change a little bit. Like if I only have to change a little bit to get back into the good graces, to get back to the status that I want, to have the influence, the impact, the safety, the comfort. Like we all just want, you know, just give me a slight little change, one that doesn't cost me much. And I'll be so willing to do that, especially if I know it's going to come with all the trappings that I've gotten used to. But to say that death and resurrection are a better way forward, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that, that's obviously gospel, right? That's the divine pattern, right? But um, not, not comforting. Right, because we, we want the resurrection without the death. 
Right. Like when we just have it be just, I'm going to, I just did air quotes. <laughs> that doesn't work on a podcast. Air right. quotes. But like Easter with like sounds great because it's three days, right? Exile is the same concept, but through generations, your generation has to die. And actually in the case of exile, it's going to be two generations. Like your grandchildren and great grandchildren are going to rebuild what you needed to lose. And you've got to let go of the thing that you, it's too far down a path. It needs something dramatic needs to happen because of the path that it's been on for too long that the prophets have been saying, by the way, for years and years, you've lost justice. You are coming, you are coming to Jerusalem for these new moon festivals, for these sacrifices, but you are not caring for the orphan. You are not caring for the widow and you can't stay here if you're not holding the whole of who I've called you to be. You can't have religion without the good. But it also, it also feels like you, you can't get to the religion unless you grieve it. So like, mm-hmm. the, it's not that in, it reminds me as we were talking about like death resurrection, it's this, it's the middle. Like you can't just all of a sudden say, okay, I'm going to take care of the widows and orphans now. We got it. We, we got it. We're good. We can just quick start doing this. Like you actually have to learn how to grieve and lament what's happened in order to like make it, to really understand it. Like in order to like get the restart, you actually have to grieve what you, what you did and what that means. This actually feels like it connects to modern wisdom and I'm probably going to get all of the information about this wrong <laughs> but the, the i believe that science is saying like it takes a few generations for things to undo in a generational pattern like that that's been backed up by studies yeah. isn't that great when you like vaguely cite studies <laughs> that's there's like, a study like, out there there's a study somewhere out there um <laughs> so i'm like trying to get more specific but i can't Don't worry find- the internet won't hold us accountable at all right no i'm sure it won't <laughs> but it doesn't things don't heal as quick as we think that they they do or as much as we want them to we it takes a few generations to undo old patterns to make our way in new ways and we want things to happen in our generation we want them to happen in our lifetime and sometimes it just takes longer than that which is a different way of hearing verse five and six than maybe we w- would in the surface because it can sound positive. Build houses and dwell in them. Oh, that doesn't sound so bad, except what is that saying? What is Jeremiah saying to those who've been carried away captive? Get used to this. <laughs> You're going to be here a while. Build houses, plant gardens, have kids, and yeah. have your kids have kids. That's how long you're going to be here. That is an intense uh, expectation. You know, I think it reminds me a little bit of our last conversation where we're talking about being out in the wilderness and we're in a tent and we're, you know, there's this, this, this idea of movement and like there's this potential that seems to be happening in Exodus, like they're headed somewhere. Now we know that they're going to get stalled out and that they're not going to go anywhere for a generation and that they're going to keep wandering. But there was still this expectation of movement, 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 movement. And we're, we're, we are going to get there one day. Like we will cross the Jordan. We will get to the promised land. Whereas this has a heaviness to it. Um, this is uh, kind of put roots down, right? Like this isn't like, hey, get some tents. You know, we're going to do just like one season of, of tomatoes. So you guys can have some good salsa for this, you know, for the fall. But like this is, uh, no, we're going to we're going to be here for some cycles, you know, some, 
um, some seasons here. Right. And it, uh, it gets uh, in verses that we didn't read down in verse 10. Uh, Jeremiah goes on to say, it's going to be 70 years. Mm -hmm. So to your point, the wilderness was 40 years. We thought that was a long time. Exile is going to be 70. Exile is a whole nother generation. And before we get to where we're headed. Hmm. Also, I just want, I am getting triggered just a little bit because <laughs> I'm, re as I'm reading it, I'm like just irritated by the language of like how, like in, like in the passage, like take wives for your son, give your daughters, like there's this taking and this giving, but it's never like, it is not equal in its gendering. Hmm. Um, which kind of reminds me a little bit of actually what I was checking in with. Maybe that's, maybe subconsciously, that's what I was thinking about is that in that move to exile, not, not everything feels like it's just. Yeah, we still have patriarchy. Thank you. Right. <laughs> um, this is where we do a little plug for take, Forty Orchards has a program called Daughters of the Torah. <laughs> we yeah. dive into patriarchy. But yeah, there's still, even as things are getting repaired, some of that language is a little problematic. And also it is true of the time. And it, I mean, really, it's also true. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure in my wedding, the pastor asked who gives this woman. That was 21 years ago. So I don't know. If that, I, but that was not, that's not that long ago, relatively. And that was right? still the language. Yeah. Who gives this woman. And maybe what we can do is look at the high side of this and say, okay, if, if the males have power in Babylon, just as the males had more power in Jerusalem, how are they using that power here? How are they being told to use it? So we can translate lakach as, uh, as take, but we can also have um, to bring. So if something's in your hand, what do you, you're bringing it someplace. You can take it someplace, but it's also the language of bringing it someplace. So the reality is in a patriarchal culture, the male of the family has the females of the family in his hand. How is he using that power in verse six? To continue the family. To Yes. And to, to be a part of, to use that power towards protection that I'm going to, I'm going to, help my daughters marry. I'm going to marry women. I'm going to use that hand as a hand of protection, which could still be slightly redemptive, though maybe not as redemptive as we want it to be. Right. It's focusing on the, the heroism of Boaz as the kinsman redeemer, as opposed to the courageousness of Ruth to go into an unknown land, stay with her mother-in-law, honor the covenant that she made, and have the bravery and the courage to go glean from a field to care for her mother-in-law who had basically given up all hope. And yet we always tend to focus on how amazing is it that Boaz was willing to marry Ruth as opposed to the hero of the story, who the book is named after being Ruth. Yeah. And, and so maybe we can say Boaz is doing something good there. Of course he is. Of course he is. And there maybe is still something good that, that is happening in verse six. And maybe let's do some midrash on the stories of the women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that aren't sign up told. for, sign up for uh, the Torah roots, the women's <laughs> right, study. Right. Yes. 
Well, you know, I think it's really fascinating when we talk about the whole years thing of like the 70 years that they are told by the prophet that they're going to have to wait before they can go back from exile versus the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And it almost makes me wonder, and this is really overly simplistic, but in the wilderness, they're coming out of slavery. They're not coming out of being oppressors. They were the oppressed. And essentially, they're learning what it means to be a people and to be prepared for the the journey towards the promised land whereas in exile at some level they have to unlearn something before they can relearn what they're supposed to be and so one you know it only takes one generation to learn something it takes two generations to unlearn something and then to relearn what they should have already known all along that doesn't feel simplistic that sounds really compelling well, that's because I said um, it with my compelling voice. <laughs> but that sense of do we do we give the amount of time it takes to unlearn and relearn something? Do we give that to ourselves? Do we give that to each other? And was it what does it take to enter the long, hard, patient work of unlearning and relearning things, especially as it relates to how we use power? Um, especially for what it how we've misused religion. The things that they are carried away from is abuse of power and misuse of religion in the sake of that power. Yeah, I can't help but wonder if this is maybe why Jesus says to have a faith like a child, because children can unlearn and relearn and unlearn and relearn and unlearn and relearn. And I'm not skipping, and this is a real podcast, and it's not unlearning and relearning. And like it, that is what a kid does. They learn something. And then they realize they made a mistake and they have to unlearn that behavior and then do something new. And I think adults, especially when you're an adult that has any form of power whatsoever or any form of position or privilege, man, to unlearn that or to, to, to realize that you've been the one causing pain and that your patterns and your systems need to change. I mean, you're more willing to fight than you are to be humble. And, but if you were childlike in your faith, not childish in your faith, childlike in your faith, there, there should be an open-handedness to that unlearning. But we're so stubborn as adults that we aren't willing to take correction from anyone, especially when we might maybe in a position where taking correction has never been the case before. It makes me think about People use the words like the, and we probably used it last time, to the um, construction, deconstruction, reconstruction of faith, and that it doesn't feel like to a child, it's unlearn, relearn, unlearn, relearn, like grow, whereas when we're adults, we use words like deconstruct, <laughs> you yeah. know, like it's such a big deal to undo old things, and then we have to rebuild, and then when we enter the next cycle of that, it feels traumatic because we think what we rebuilt lasts forever, but it turns out that that's a cycle that continues, and it really is that we're becoming like children, hopefully, and we can relearn and unlearn and do that whole process, but to us, it feels so dramatic. <laughs> to deconstruct and reconstruct and then deconstruct again. And we get exhausted instead of just going, oh, look, here's something I didn't know before. Right, right. I mean, just a simple moment earlier, you used the male pronoun for God and then, you know, corrected and said, or she, you know, we don't need to just get caught using only masculine pronouns. But a non-binary person would be like, and we don't need to get stuck just using male or female because... I don't identify that way at all. And that's another. So 
we learn something, we unlearned it, have to relearn. And now there's maybe a push to unlearn again and have to relearn. And that may happen again and again and again, because we're trying to be loving and show up for people and make room because the gospel doesn't say no, the gospel says, come on in. And so how do we do that with our language? And I think you were giving us an example of that by correcting the, you know, the simple use of he or him for God. Um, but yeah, that, that learning and unlearning is, uh, is a requirement uh, in a way. And, it's, and it takes time. To, like it's patterned in me. Of course. To use male pronouns for God. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes we might need to do that. We don't have to un we don't have to never use male pronouns. We're just expanding right. what pronouns we use. Right. But also there are things that become habit when you've engaged in them for long enough and you're not consciously using it. You're just right. so yeah. Unlearn, relearn, unlearn, relearn. What would they be relearning by planting gardens and eating their fruit? Verse five. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens, eat their fruit. Well, that's the beginning, right? That's <laughs> like Genesis 1. <laughs> you're, you're laughing as you said that. Was that, did that, does it? Well, it, I mean, because you start at the beginning. Okay, so we tend to uh, go back not quite far enough, <laughs> right? In exile, like one of the things that happens in multiple places, this isn't the only one, um, we, like in Ezekiel, Valley of the Dry Bones, common passage, maybe we could study that sometime too. It's Here they are in exile and God is taking them back to a garden imagery, meaning not taking them back to Jerusalem, not taking them back to, prom- not even taking them back to Egypt. Like as we are relearning, what does it mean to go all the way back to the beginning and remember how humanity started as, as the way we relearn? We're not, and I, I wonder as we think about even like deconstruction or where the state of the church is, like, do we not go back far enough? Are we trying to, is that the difference with like rebuilding or relearning as compared to just changing? Like we need to go back further and start again. Well, and I think it also potentially connects for me, at least this idea of you've put other people in a position to do this for you. And because you've been the oppressor for generations now, and you haven't probably been the ones in the garden and you've been, but you've been the one to eat the food. And so now, now you get to be the one to garden again, and you get to be in touch with the land. You get to be in touch with creation again and so yeah it does go back to genesis but it also goes back to this you need to participate in this not just lord over this yeah that's an interesting thought to say they have perhaps for a few generations now eaten the fruit that other people have tended what is it to tend their own gardens and eat their own fruit and reconnect with the land and reconnect with work but Um, in a way that it's not theirs Right. Like in ba- like the idea that they're leaving in 70 years or whether they believe that or not, <laughs> but like, there's an idea that this land in Babylon is not their land. They might be living on it. Maybe they're building a home on it. They're planting a garden in it, but it's not for like, it's not for their own generational, like growth. 
building, we're going to own so much empire. It's more of a way of like the simplistic thing of like, build a place where you will live, plant a garden and eat of that garden. Like just, it feels like it's a big paring down, but not in a way of like planting deep roots in a way Mm -hmm. of like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm saying this, like the picture just feels a little bit different when it's not in the land where they're supposed to settle or where they're supposed to be like in mm-hmm. a, like in this foreign place that they're not going to be for forever. Yeah. Because it means it's not for their own wealth building. I love that Lisa. I think that is so such a great insight that this isn't Israel 2.0 in the land of Babylon. This is, this is the unlearning process, right? Like get back to the simplest thing imaginable, plant a garden, eat from its vine, eat the fruit. Just do that for a while. Then we'll get to nation building. We'll get to religion establishing at a much later time because right now you've lost the pattern of of the simple. And I wonder if that's a part of what gives space to grieve. When we talked about having to grieve what was lost, like, do you need some time to just plant a garden and eat its fruit for a while before trying to rebuild? Because otherwise you're rebuilding something from a place of pain does the simplicity just give you a give you some time to just be just live just be reconnect with simple good then we'll get back well well that gives us something to move from that's good i mean this is such a random thought but it it almost reminds me of busy work and how as kids like you just got that all the time in school And it's because you're establishing new patterns, like new neural pathways. Like, you know, I have a kindergartner. And so he brings home so much stuff that is not exactly Picasso, hang it on the wall forever type artwork. You know, it's, it's that whole, here are the letters for A, B, and C, and here's the dotted lines and you trace it five times and then you write it by yourself five more times and then you do that with b and then you do that with c and you just have to learn the alphabet repetitively over and over and over and i'm not keeping any of this stuff right like i'm not the kind of parent that hangs everything on the fridge and like celebrates every little art creation that my kid had i mean we'll take a picture of it we'll put it up for a day but then like it's going in the recycling bin why because the point is to learn the point is to like establish a new neural pathway for how the hand touches a pencil, meets the page, and actually writes the letter A over and over and over and over again. Now, eventually, I hope that he is able to do something where he's putting together a portfolio to show a future employer that he's capable of dynamic work, whatever that work may be. But that's not going to happen in kindergarten. It's not going to happen in the learning phase. Like Instead, he needs to figure this part out first, and then we'll get to the portfolio building. We'll get to designing something that may last a generation or a business that he'll create or a ministry that he'll have or a classroom that he can impact other young lives or whatever he wants to do. But the point is like, you got to trace the A over and over and over, you know, until you can actually do it. We're used to the story, but it makes me think like the fact that garden is the image chosen for the neural pathways we need for life. Like God could have chosen another metaphor. Besides placing humans in a garden, yeah, um, humans could have been placed in a city that we were building. Humans could have been placed in all sorts of places, 
And it feels so meaningful that the neural pathways we need to develop are developed in a garden, mm. in the work of getting our hands dirty, in the work of cultivating life, in the work of learning to observe. I think part of why it becomes meaningful to me is I'm not a good gardener. Like I'm looking at a dead plant that I'm in my office that I've been trying to like unkill or <laughs> and it is taking so much work for me to figure out what I'm doing wrong because have, I'm not good at it. You have to have faith in resurrection, apparently. <laughs> Well, but part of it is I am not, gardens take so much ongoing work and I'm not good at that part. I'm not good at the the rhythm of watering and the rhythm of watching. I want to just plant something and have it flourish. And it's really meaningful to have to do the work of trying to make something flourish, to mm. try to care for it well. Well, it reminds me, makes me think a little bit too that like sometimes we try to plant stuff that we have no business planting like where we where we lack indigenous wisdom of like certain things help other things grow or they protect this thing or there's seasonal aspects and my husband and I get into this conversation cuz he loves a green uh green grass like a manicured lawn and i <laughs> think it's stupid because that is not that is not indigenous to this land you have to work hard and it's expensive to make the grass be a green thing and so sometimes too just that if you roll back into the simplest of things of like, not like this garden doesn't feel like an overwhelming, <laughs> like you've turned the backyard into this ginormous thing. You, you've produced the thing that you're going to eat from. You're going mm -hmm. to nourish yourself and your family out of this thing that you're tending, which means that you're going to lean into what makes what, what grows makes the here. most sense. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's also, I love that idea of, a garden versus like a city or like a building or a creek, you know, like what for the most part, like when you're building something like a city or, or whatever, you know, when they were in Egypt, they really weren't reliant on anything but their own strength, right? Like if you're building like a house, you just have to have the right tools and then you have to have your like ingenuity and your like chutzpah to like just get it done. But when you're gardening, man, you're at the mercy of like how rainy is it going to be? is the soil right? Is it going to be sunny enough? Is this the right spot for this thing? Like Lisa's talking about, is it seasonally appropriate to do this? And if I really want this certain plant, you know, or certain type of fruit, but it's not the right season for it, then guess what? I don't get it. I can't just go and like add a toilet into the house. You know, like I can't just build onto my house. Like I have to be patient with the ground and with, there's a whole nother cycle that exists outside of my control when I'm gardening. And I wonder if that is almost a metaphor for like really crappy religion that they may have gotten caught up in was this religion of like, I can control it. I can get it when I want. All I have to do is sacrifice this, do this, do this, then the blessing will come. And it was control, 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 as opposed to, don't you realize that you're not in control at all? Like you don't get to control all of this. Now I need your participation. I need you to show up, but you're not in control. Just like when you're, you know, planting a garden, I need you to do the work, but I'll cause the sun to shine. I'll cause the rain to come. The plants are going to come up when it's right for them to come up. Not too fast, not too slow. Gardening keeps us humble. Yeah. There, there's a lot that there's work that is ours. It doesn't use the word participation, but there's also stuff that we know is not ours. 
which I feel like, okay, this gets us, I think, to verse seven, because we haven't gotten to verse seven yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Shalom. Let's um, do that. Shalom. So this whole conversation leads us to shalom. And so in our translation, it's just not always obvious um, how much it says shalom. So seek the shalom of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captives and pray to the, the living presence for it. For in its shalom, you shall have shalom. So there's a high emphasis here on shalom. And shalom, so my translation says peace. Sometimes it's translated welfare. The verb at the root, we always have verbs at the root in Hebrew, are, is shalom, which is to be at peace, but it's but it's to be completed. Or let's look at, I've got a new favorite verse to go to for this. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, which is now we're, we're at the end of the 70 years when we're in Nehemiah 6, 15, because they are going, Nehemiah has gotten um, called back to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, which had been in disrepair since the Babylonian exile. So we're at a sort of interesting tail end of this same story. But in Nehemiah 6.15, the wall was finished on the, 20, on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. Yes. So the wall was shalom. Um, this is the verb that is at the root of shalom. So what was true of the wall before this verse? It was not whole. It was not completed. Okay, it wasn't whole. It wasn't completed. And why did Nehemiah have to go? What was true of the wall? It was broken. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I was asking a leading question. That's always dangerous, particularly dangerous when there's only three of us. This is a part that feels lost in Shalom when we talk about it, is that Shalom actually is not used for the first time until after the garden. Shalom is first used in Genesis 14. Not Gen it's not in Genesis 1. It's not in Genesis 2. It's not in Genesis 3 even. There's an idea that's in it that something needs to be repaired. It's the kind of wholeness that comes after repair or after brokenness. Mm -hmm. It's not, there's, there are other words that are more innate wholeness. This is more of a restored wholeness, a repaired wholeness. Other places it's used are things like if you steal two goats from someone, you should give them, you should shalom them three goats. <laughs> um, you have to restore what you stole. So there's the verb action has something, something got broken, something got stolen, something got lost, and you are repairing that, you are restoring that. It is the kind of wholeness that is brought after something has been lost. And I think that really speaks to that, that, you know, we, we've talked about like the human condition and, um, you know, I think we get a little bit, theology can get a little too heavy with like the fall, the fall, the fall, the fall, as opposed to like, so is it original sin? Is it original blessing and all that? But I think what you're bringing us to is that there's a better question out there. It's okay. Like it may be original blessing and there may be a brokenness. But like the question is, what are we doing to restore, to reconcile, to renew and to resurrect that brokenness? How do we bring about shalom in the midst of this? Oh, how do we bring about shalom in the midst of this? How do we bring shalom where we are? How do we seek the shalom of the city 
for in its shalom, we will have shalom. So whatever needs to be repaired in the people that caused the exile in the first place will be repaired through them seeking that restoration and wholeness of the city where they live. Like, what does that say about what shalom is? What does it say about what shalom isn't? Lisa, you're deep in thought. Is it, is it ready to yet? Well, I mean, again, I'm back to that whole idea that it's rooting in the city because it's not, at this point, it's not saying like to your, like to your brother, to your neighbor, to the, like, it's like seek the shalom of a city. If I was trying to think about like, what would it be like to seek the shalom of my city of where I live? I kind of get like, what in the world? Like, how do you do that? <laughs> like, how, what is that? What if you replace the word city and put system? Like, seek the shalom of the system and if this and if the system that you're in has shalom then you too will have shalom like have shalom i don't know if system works because that feels just as big as city (laughs) but i wonder if that's the point though like it, it that there's you're not just an individual you're part of community i mean this is ancient near eastern very communal orientated culture i mean Majority of the Bible is written to communities, not written to individuals. I mean, if if ever is it written to an individual, you know, not much. So there is a communal nature to this whole thing. The Hebrew might help us here. So a city is ur or ear, which comes from ur, which is to awake or watch. So the word for city is a place that is watched over. Like it's a place that is worth guarding, essentially, mm. um, because cities have walls and cities have people watching them. And so it is a it is a word for a place that is being watched over, which means it's it's maybe a city. It's an encampment. It's a post. It's something seen as valuable enough to have a watchman. So you could essentially say restore what's been broken to the thing that is valuable. Because when the thing that is valuable has a sense of restoration, you too will be restored. And the thing that's that you're living inside of. So like, okay, here's what here's one of the things I think about. I remember when I've heard indigenous when I've heard indigenous people speak and they start a, a, a talk by naming like their ancestors. One of the things that struck me one of the times was like, gosh, as a white, as a cisgendered white person, I feel like I spend time in therapy disconnecting myself from my ancestors. And here is this, an indigenous person consciously connecting them to their ancestors as they begin. Where I have thought that healing comes through disconnecting from my family of origin through therapy. This is oversimplified. I'm just trying to, but whereas what the wisdom here perhaps is no through healing that and staying connected to that, that's ultimately where you find your healing. Mm-hmm. So it'd be more like a family systems therapy mindset perhaps, because I don't want to oversimplify therapy, but that sense of like, sometimes we think we have to leave a thing to get healing and restoration from it. And I wonder if there's something here about being inside of it, mm-hmm. seeking the healing of the thing you're inside of. Well, it's kind of both because we we can't forget that God did remove them from Jerusalem and the temple. And so they did get separated from all of their past. I mean, that that is kind of the point. So they are separated from it. So 
that family systems work might mean, okay, let's step outside that for a minute. You're in a new unit. Let's figure out this unit over here. But Jerusalem is the city of peace. They lived in, they were supposed to be this. Yeah. <laughs> they could not be this thing that they were supposed to be. So now they've been removed to actually have to learn how to be the thing so that your city is reflective of it. They had it. That's what they were supposed to be. The city that was watched over was the city of peace. Like everybody who encountered it should have experienced this peace, this wholeness, this restoration. And it wasn't happening. The opposite was happening. So then, then they get pulled out and put into a different place and are told to figure out like, now you have to figure out how to be that peace. Okay. So we didn't talk about Jerusalem is Yeru Shalom city it's the te- it's actually teaching of peace so you were living in a city whose name was shalom and you made it a place of oppression i have removed you from the city of shalom and i'm asking you to bring shalom to this city as a way of restoring your own shalom and until you can do that you can't go back and and, and expect to establish that city of peace again because it was never about the place. It was about who you were as a people in that place. Learn to inhabit shalom in this other place. That is what will enable you to re-inhabit a place is by inhabiting it as a people. So how does that translate? What, it, what does that mean for like, who, who are we in this then? Who, where, where are we looking for shalom in order to restore our own shalom? Well, I think, it, I mean, you, you brought up a really interesting example, you know, and for the record, searching the sacred as a podcast is not anti-therapy and Steph was not trying to say that she was at all. Um, but I think you bring up a really interesting uh, example of the work that people have been doing and are doing to try to navigate the complexities of life and family systems and things. And So for me, when I think about my family system that I grew up in, in both its beauty and its complexity and its pain, sometimes it's not like I live there now, right? Like I don't live in my parents' home. My brothers don't still live there. And to seek the peace of that doesn't make a lot of sense because none of us are there. But I'm in this new family unit with Michelle and my boys and my dog and this community in this neighborhood. And if I seek the peace of this space and there really is a sense of restoration and renewal that goes on in this space, then that will bring a sense of restoration and renewal to me and allow me to then be a part of my, my family of origin in ideally a more mature, healthy way that can hopefully bring a sense of peace, restoration, wholeness, into that unit, as opposed to the cycle of, you know, argumentation, frustration, bitterness, resentment, you know, that can exist in families of origin, because we never actually deal with the crap that we went through. Some that might be irredeemable, in you know, depending on the people involved, but sometimes there's a lot of redemption possible, but we aren't mature enough to go and seek, we haven't done the work to, to get there. I appreciate you clarifying that I'm not anti-therapy. I'm very pro-therapy, <laughs> um, but also pro-good therapy, which is what you're, yeah. I feel like you just described 
what hopefully the work is. So I, there's something about peace that I need to learn to inhabit as a way of restoring where I currently live, but there's also a way that restores the story I've come from. Mm -hmm. It it brings restoration to the generational patterns of my Mm -hmm. family, Mm -hmm. which is different than just leaving it though. Sometimes that is the pathway too. I mean, that's another sort of caveat. Sometimes people need to leave traumatic, terrible situations. And that is also true. So we don't want to make simple cut and dry solutions. But this idea of through seeking the shalom of a place, I will have through its shalom, I will have shalom as an, maybe it maybe as an Enneagram four that doesn't feel right to me. I think through, through looking for my own peace, I bring peace to others through looking to my own restoration, I bring restoration to others. And that's not how this is saying it. It's saying through seeking the restoration of this place where I live, which includes myself, that's really where I bring a different restoration. And I think it's different for each of us because I think what you're expressing is this tension around doing the work for yourself. And then that will bring, you know, like I need to do that internal work as a four. I think for a nine, right? Which is what I am, a peacemaker. The peace of the city, the peace of the system, the peace of the other is like really natural to me. But as soon as someone asks me, Jason, what brings you a sense of calm? What do you need right now? I have no idea. Like nines are notorious for not knowing what they need. And so when you're talking about the system needs to get healthy in order for me to be healthy, well, I'm just going to keep finding ways to try to make the system healthy because I don't want to identify the ways in which I need to be healthy because I'm just going to pretend that if you're okay and that thing's okay, then I must be fine too. And Mm so it's that to me. So that is my challenge in this is to say, okay, if there is a sense of restoration happening in our midst, am I also doing the work to bring that restoration internally? Am I really being honest with how I'm doing? Because so often I'm not. So often Mm -hmm. I'm allowing the enmeshed relationships that I have to dictate whether or not I feel at peace when I'm not really identifying my own stuff. In verse seven, the language is to seek the peace. Hmm. And so I wonder, like, I don't know that I'm trying to think about like, that's not necessarily me bringing the peace. <laughs> like yeah. I have the peace I'm going to offer it to you. <laughs> and I wonder, like, I was thinking about like, okay, so if I, I think about but this people that I've been forced to like become a part of, can I see, can I find like Shalom there? Like, can I see it in them? Can I see it in, in their, is there good in there somewhere? Is there something or how do I help it flourish? I don't know. It's almost like it exists already. I just have to go try to find it. I really love that, Lisa, because I, for another endeavor that I'm involved in was just reflecting on the parable of the mustard seed and then the parable of the yeast in the bread. And what I couldn't, I, I, I just, I got fixated on it was that the yeast permeates the entire loaf and allows it to become nourishment. Right. And so it's almost like what you're saying is that you seek the peace of this city so that it flourishes and it's restored because what you're meant to do is to help bring about that, that flourishing, that, yeah, that, that nourishment, you're not meant to be the nourishment. You're meant to like help that thing become nourishing in and of itself outside of just you. 
And seeking has some work to it that is not, it might not be easy to know what shalom looks like here. It might not be easy to know how to bring it. So we're seeking it. We're seeking the shalom. So we're, we're kind of, the word is darash, which um, will, I'm sure, come up several times in this podcast because it's the verb at the root of the word midrash. So you're seeking something and I, and I, seeking is like really looking. It's not just glancing. It's really looking for it. It's moving. I, I talk about this a lot with the, my, I use the example of looking for the ketchup in the refrigerator. <laughs> You don't just look with your eyes. You're only going to find the ketchup if you also look with your hands. <laughs> You're going to say, I know it is in here somewhere and I will find it. So what is it to say, I know the shalom of this place is in here somewhere and I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep looking for what is mine to do, what is ours to do to bring about the repair that, that all of us need. Um, and I'm going to do the work of seeking that. I'm going to go through the grief of seeking it and not finding it. I'm going to allow, I'm going to let it be frustrating. I'm going to, I'm going to learn. I'm going to believe that it's possible. See, there's a way that seeking believes it's there. So I believe there can be restoration and wholeness here. And so I'm going to look, we're going to look, we're going to look for the restoration and wholeness in the United States in 2021 for different people groups for different political opinions, for different races. We're going to believe that shalom is possible and we're going to seek what that looks like. What's ours to do in bringing it. And we're going to do it with that posture of unlearning and relearning and unlearning and relearning. Because if anything, this, this passage is teaching us that humility is a prerequisite for that growth. Humility and listening and drawing back from our own agenda and getting back in touch with a divine one, with a sacred one, with getting back to that pattern of all things, that death and resurrection that we try to avoid at all costs. And through building houses and living here for a few generations and this posture of humility that is gardening, eating its fruit and seeking shalom and two generations will have done the work needed to try again. It's beautiful and hard and challenging. Is it exactly what I was thinking, Jason? I was like, well, oh God, what things are we doing right now that are going to take two generations? <laughs> right? Right? I think this is a really beautiful place for us to wrap up this episode. This episode two on Shalom, on exile and all the things that come with Jeremiah. We didn't even touch Jeremiah uh, 2911, the one that everybody has on a pillowcase or a plaque on the wall when they graduated. We'll have to come back to that one because I think that's one of those complicated verses that we don't understand at all, especially when it's read to us at graduation time. <laughs> but we can uh, circle back and in case you're curious about it, just look it up. You'll understand. Maybe what we can have as part of close here is that in that verse, God says that God seeks thoughts of shalom towards us. Hmm. So as we are seeking the shalom of where we live and as we are, uh, that God is thinking thoughts of shalom towards us, that that repair, that peace, that completeness and wholeness, that restoration is possible. And God thinks that way towards us and asks us to seek it for those around us. This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 
40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchard study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that. Process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Sacred.